So, Mark. Yes. In this week's movie, between two scenes, Anton Yelchin goes from using a blocky flip phone to a sleek, modern iPhone. And that got me wondering, do you have any other favorite examples of ways movies tell you time has passed? Without, like, a four years later card on the bottom. So, usually with your cold opens, it takes me a while to think of an example sometimes. This one I had in my back pocket, and it is Time Pass Bangs. My absolute favorite is the way a movie tells you time has passed by giving a woman bangs. Usually in a flashback. Usually, Yeah, usually it's a flashback or a flash forward a woman with bangs no longer has bangs. But for some reason, and I'm struggling to think of a concrete example, but in so many movies, the way they tell you time has passed is a woman gets bangs. It's funny. You are exactly right. And I also cannot think of an example. Well, I can't totally help you out here, but my example of a good way a movie shows time passing is obviously the classic Meg Ryan's hair in When Harry Met Sally. And she doesn't get bangs to show that time passed, but she does have bangs in some of those hairstyles. That is a perfect example because she does have, in some cases, wildly different hair from one time slot to another. I found a BuzzFeed article, 21 fake bangs from TV and movies. (laughs) 21 times pop culture used bangs to try and fool us into believing that time had passed. Any great hits there? Uh, Apparently in Scandal, Olivia gets bangs in a flashback. Uh, Rachel had bangs in a flashback. Linda had bangs in a flashback. Sorry, Linda Bob's Bob's Burgers. Burgers. Yeah. Young Amy has bangs in Little Women. Oh, that's true. That's true. Petra has flashback bangs in Jane the Virgin. Amy has flashback bangs in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah, this is totally a thing. We will have to share this list. And you can let us know your favorite flashback bangs on Twitter with a picture and the hashtag, hashtag bang it out. Or hashtag bang it back. Hashtag bang it back to tell us that it's in the past. Uh, the worst one I've found so far is in Riverdale, when time and space bent every way possible, it gave Veronica some bangs. So apparently Riverdale has alternate realities now. That does not surprise me. <laughs> I watched the first season of that show and made it halfway through season two, and I was like, this is getting kind of weird. And it has only gotten weirder from the few things I have heard since. I love occasionally learning things about Riverdale, like the fact that Archie went to prison. Archie went to prison? I think he was accused of murder. Oh my god. I should just read the Wikipedia summaries of Riverdale just to get caught up. In a throwback to a show we used to discuss in this podcast, I recently read the Wikipedia summary of the Godfriended Me series finale. Did he meet God? Like, actual God? Well, two things. First of all, he comes to believe in God. So ultimately, it means the show was a story about him no longer being an atheist. Unsurprising. And then he goes to the Himalayas, where he may or may not meet God. It, like, fades to white at the end of the series. I need a... I'm gonna need some time to sit sit with this after this episode. I highly recommend reading through some plot summaries of season two of God Friended Me, which none of us watched. I just want to go on record that Will and Mark are both aware of how much I hate the show God Friended Me. So they were gonna have... I was so excited to be a guest. I had a lot of good things that I wanted to talk about. And I'm sorry to say that my time on this episode (laughs) and maybe even on this podcast has now come to an end. I hope everyone has a lovely life. Um, 
I am goodbye. I am really glad that this came up on an episode with Rachel. We're cutting. It only feels fitting. No. Well, Rachel left the podcast, and we are now joined by (laughs) Rachel's twin from an alternate Riverdale universe, Blachel. (laughs) She has bangs now. I was gonna say that you should encourage your listeners to send in their own bang flashback pics, and that was entirely because I had bangs until the age of five, and I was really cute, and I wanted to show it off. We're including it. Those count as flashback bangs. They're flashback bangs to your own life. Hashtag bang it back. Post them on Twitter. I would love to see some old bang pictures, especially if they're unfortunate. Or, as Felicity Jones would say, fringe pictures. And that's that your transition to this week's movie. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining one of the most important, unimportant questions facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable or even smart enough that they conceivably would still be alive at this age? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. And this week, we are once again rejoined, still in self-quarantine from the last time we talked to her, by our good friend, Blachel, the alternate reality (laughs) version of Rachel. I have to say... I, Blachel, have never been on this podcast before, and I am so annoyed when people just conflate me with the more visible Rachel. You really should do better here. I'm offended. I might also need to leave. Well, you just walked through this wormhole, and I figured that you had probably been on the alternate reality version of this show. With Blill and Blark. Love we the we. (laughs) With Blill and Blark. It's actually called Pot of Heartness in my reality, so... It started out as We Love the Wii, and then the podcast executive demanded a name change about a year into the show, so it's called Pod of Heartness. Honestly, that makes as much sense as Heart of Podness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Anyway, this week we're talking about Like Crazy. So, Like Crazy is notable because it was the winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2011. And Mark, you had never seen this before, right? No, I hadn't. I also had not, but Rachel, this was a... Excuse me. Rachel thought that this was a movie that we should cover on the podcast. Blachel, did you have any past experience with this movie? Yes. So I watched this movie for the first time in fall 2013 because it was on Netflix and I didn't feel like doing homework. And two weeks later, my friend was having a movie night and I showed up and it was announced we were watching this movie. And I pushed for us to watch something different because... I had just watched this, but one of the people at the movie night was in D.C. and her relatively serious boyfriend was living in London. So she said she really wanted to watch this to be able to connect to it. For what it's worth, they are now married and have a child. So things worked out a little differently than it did in this movie. Hey, they get married in this movie. Oh, that's true. Okay, fair. And then what really stuck with me about this movie from when I watched it in fall 2013 was that there are some really good sweaters. Truly, what I remembered about this movie, the three things I remembered, number one, transatlantic relationship. Number two, final scene is the two of them in a shower and she does not take off her necklace. Number three, great sweaters. That is all I remembered. So last fall, sweater weather was upon us and I thought to myself, I need a little sweater inspiration. Like crazies on Hulu, This would be great for me to watch. 
And I was not prepared for what this movie is actually about, which is two very stupid people continuing to hurt themselves and each other over and over and over again. And because I like to look for cool, different takes on relationships for this podcast, I immediately texted Will and said, you should do this movie because it's a bad relationship. And I like it when you cover those. God, this movie made me so angry, but not angry enough, not angry enough to really care that much. Like I did not, this movie was very boring to me, to be honest. Like, I just didn't get invested in these people at all because of how dumb they were at the beginning. Right. In particular, and we'll talk about this, the decision for her to overstay her visa by months is so obviously terrible on the face of it. The sheer gall of this woman, and it's so privileged that she would think that she could overstay a visa by two months and then just waltz back into the country. Like, what? I was so mad. Well, it is worth noting, so this movie is directed by Drake Doramus, and it's written, sort of, by Doramus with Ben York Jones. I say written loosely because they didn't write a traditional script so much as they wrote, like, a 50-page outline that included, like, in every scene, here's what happens, here's what every character wants, like, here is relevant backstory. But they didn't really write lines of dialogue. The actual dialogue is mostly improvised. But it is based in part on a long-term relationship of Drake Doramus's with a woman in London. The relationship in total lasted eight years, four of them long distance. And did include, like, visa issues. At one point, they got married to try to clear that up. So, I don't know how much of it, but to an extent, these are things that happened. I just can't imagine anyone being shocked when the TSA or customs person is like, you overstayed your visa, I need to talk to you in a back room, and then they say, you can't come into the country. Like, why would you be surprised by that? There's laws. I agree that there are laws, but in some ways, I think that this kind of makes sense because she has been in the U.S. for several years on her student visa and presumably not had any issues with this. I'm assuming she also wasn't really working while she was there, which I know is a thing several of my friends who are in the U.S. on student visas paid a lot of attention to because there are rules about how much you can work while you're on a student visa. But her visa was never something she really had to think about. And also, Mark, you and I both have experiences being American students on visas in other countries. It's the sort of thing where as long as you pay attention, I didn't find that being a foreigner really affected my life in terms of immigration because I was in the UK, which in a lot of ways is similar to the US. I would like to think that I'm smarter than she is and paid a lot of attention. For example, if you're on a student visa in the UK, you're technically not supposed to nanny or babysit at all. And I had considered doing that at first and said, okay, looks like this isn't allowed. But if it's not something you're running into, there are a lot of restrictions. I think it's conceivable that especially given that she is pretty young it's not something that she would really think that much about in terms of the ramifications and we also see her when she's trying to come in she says well no I'm not trying to come in on a visa I'm just coming in as a tourist and although I think she's very stupid I can understand how it wouldn't have occurred to her it should have but I know how it might not until she's in that moment realizing oh I did something much more consequential than I realized And I will say, I do think this movie does a really good job of portraying 
young people kind of in serious love for the first time and the ways that that is sort of short-sighted in the sense of you're feeling all these emotions that you've never felt before. And so you don't necessarily, you think those feelings are enough to sort of carry you through and you aren't yet old enough to really be considering some of the pragmatic aspects that also have to come along with a long-term relationship. The annoying thing also to me is I'm watching this and it's just, they live in LA, Mexico, very close by, drive to Mexico, spend two nights there when her visa's expired, drive back through customs, you got another six months as a tourist because you left the country. That's all they had to do. And they would have been fine. Is that true in the US? Just I know there are some places where there is a limit on number of days you can spend in the country, even if you're using different visa types. Maybe it would be different with Mexico because Mexico and the US have such a weird like border. But if she had gone back to the UK for a week, I was just like, like, and her parents clearly have money. They probably could have afforded a round trip flight. She goes back to the UK for a week or she flies back to the UK and then buys a second round trip flight to the US a week later and then goes back for the holiday or wedding. It's just visa issues. I guess having lived in Singapore too, I have seen people get around visa restrictions legally for a long time. And they're not that hard to figure out. Oh, yeah. I was legally in Morocco for months and was never on an actual visa, just a tourist visa. And we talked about this with Dr. Doolittle, how the woman playing (laughs) Emma Fairfax had to keep going back to the UK and then coming back to California. And they had to keep renting different houses for her to stay in so it wouldn't establish residency. Yeah, it's really not that difficult. My friend's dad lived in Singapore for two years on a tourist visa. He just drove to Malaysia. Malaysia every 90 days to reestablish his tourist status. And the thing is, she makes such a conscious decision that they have her just like say, like she's talked about it repeatedly with her parents and her parents are like, you can't stay because it'll affect your future. And then she's still just like, no, I'm going to do it. It's going to be fine. But I think it is worth noting that when she makes this decision, yes, She has been told about the ramifications, but she does make it kind of in the moment, the night before they're about to leave. And I feel like in that scene, when they go to the island the night before she leaves, you can tell that their connection has changed a little bit. And I think her deciding to stay is the manifestation of her panic when she realizes that their relationship might not be able to survive two months apart, even with the knowledge that she'll be returning. I guess it's just the stupidity of it just really turned me off. I just was like, I couldn't take them seriously after that because I was like, you, you, you so dumb and you don't even like, you're shocked that there are any ramifications. And I get the appeals process, like why they would go through the appeals process. But I also kind of understand why the appeals didn't work because she made a very conscious choice to overstay a visa by two months. They have computers. They can check these things. It is not the 1800s. Well, the 1800s, you could just walk in the country. As long as you're not Chinese in the last two decades. Yeah. It's like people could get on the computers that they have and are like, oh, I have your entire immigration history here. But it's maybe worth transitioning from that to the fact that both of our leads in this movie would have experiences, whether they remember them or not, with the U.S. immigration system. Felicity Jones, of course, 
is an English actor, and Anton Yelchin was born in what was then the Soviet Union, what is now Russia, and immigrated to California when he was like six months old. So Yelchin is like starting to blow up at this point. This is two years after he was in Star Trek, which he's very good in, uh, and Terminator Salvation, which I have not seen, but have played the arcade game of many times. They're both very good in this movie. Yeah. Like, they're both very talented in this movie and giving good performances, but I was still just kind of, I just kind of got off board because I don't enjoy when people make such obvious bad decisions in movies. And I guess apparently it's based off of a real decision, so people do be that dumb. I could not find confirmation that anybody did this specific thing, but large chunks of it seem to be taken from Drake Dormus's relationship. I mean, it's like if there's one thing that you should know about America as a foreigner, it's that they are very strict at their border. But how much do you think she had really experienced that strictness given that she is a white English girl? When I was dealing with getting my British visa, it was not that easy. Like, there was a lot of work put into it, and I had to sign a lot of documents with all of the rules and restrictions. I think someone did this for her. Yes, I agree. probably. I think that, especially because she was going in in undergrad, she was probably 17 years old when this was happening, I think the family lawyers set everything up for her and said, here, sign these papers. Why do they have such a good relationship with their lawyer? I mean, that's like, a you thing never in media. See Everyone's like, screen. oh, yes, my lawyer, Jeff, come on over. And I'm like, I, maybe this was once a thing. That's possible. I don't know. Maybe it's a rich people thing. It kind of does seem like a British people thing. I don't know of any British examples I, of I this, said rich people thing. Oh, rich people? Sure. I said rich. Well, yeah. her parents are both rich and British, so. Double doozy. I think it makes sense for them to be very friendly with their lawyer. Also, I mean, maybe it's because they had to set all this stuff up for their daughter to go study in the United States. And so they got to know him really well during that process when they probably paid him a lot of money so that she didn't have to do anything. Uh, I just remember filling out my student visa, like application forms and getting everything prepared. And it was a doozy of a process. It's so intense. UK visas are so expensive. Yes, it was also crazy expensive. And I had to like drive out to this rundown strip mall in Glenmont to get my picture taken at some weird Department of Homeland Security office that was like a sadder DMV. It was bizarre. And it was like, the British embassy is right there. Can I not just go to the British embassy and get the like information taken? They're like, no, you have to go to the Department of Homeland Security office and then mail it to the British embassy. And I'm like, it's right there. And that, uh, there's so many steps that go with that too, because like, now you gotta buy stamps? No, because it was so many papers that I had to go to a UPS and get it weighed. I couldn't just use stamps. Who takes mail? Like, why did I have to mail it? Why couldn't I just submit it online? That said, mail's very important. Remember to mail in your ballot this that fall. That is also very true. Like, I support the post Request office. Request it now! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you have not already requested your mail-in ballot, September is winding down, so you should do that. Vote.gov. Now, speaking of the cost of mail, I'm going to pivot to the cost of this movie. All right. This is not a good week for segues. <laughs> so the movie was shot on a shoestring budget, $250,000, including, like, the airfare to shoot in both London and California. So they did it with a real skeleton crew. They didn't even shoot on a traditional film camera. They used a Canon still camera, like, you know, the one that your mom had at your high school graduation. 
and they just, like, used film lenses attached to that. And that was partially because they were doing a lot of shooting outside, stealing shots, trying to get into close spaces. And, like I said, the movie premiered at Sundance in January of 2011. It was released in theaters in October of that year, and it grossed $3.7 million on 162 screens, which, for a $250,000 movie, is a nice little return. Yeah, that's quite a profit, considering you could make $500,000 and double your budget. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's this little movie. It's Dormus's sort of autobiography with Anton Yelchin, this star on the rise. Felicity Jones, who really, this is kind of an early breakout for her. She was sent the pseudo script and was supposed to do like send in video auditions. It was her doing two scenes. And apparently, according to interviews at the time, the thing that really had her stand out was not only did she do those two scenes, but she also recorded video of herself doing the final scene, the two of them in the shower, and just like the nonverbal stuff. And she recorded that with her boyfriend standing in, just with her doing face acting in the shower. And that got her the part. That was a pretty good idea. Yeah. Now, as far as our our main cast members, the other big name in this movie is Jennifer Lawrence, who we have never discussed on this podcast. I... I'm shocked that we've made it this far without talking about any Jennifer Lawrence. Well, the obvious ones for us to do would be her collaborations with David O. Russell. So that would be Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, or Joy. And we've never talked about them. We could also do I Know Nothing About It, but Mother! Exclamation point, her weird movie. Mother! Uh, there are some people who really want us to cover Mother. The plainest alleged romance in her filmography is probably Passengers, but that's not a movie I feel like watching. I have no desire to watch that movie. But it's interesting to see her here because it's so very early in her career. Like Crazy comes out at Sundance January 2011, exactly one year after Winter's Bone had premiered at the previous Sundance. That movie was a breakout for her. It got her her first Oscar nomination. Winter's Bone along the way also changed the Best Picture rules because the Academy got mad that a movie so few people had seen got Best Picture nominated. So they changed it from just 10 movies to between 5 and 10. But like, this is the same year that she's in her first X-Men movie. So when we think about the arc of her career, Hunger Games is in the future, the David O. Russell movies are in the future. This is a very little scene, Jennifer Lawrence. And this is very, like, she's such a small role that Jennifer Lawrence does not play very often. She's usually, like, star or bust. Because even in Winter's Bone... Yeah, and the X-Men franchise totally warps around her, where her character is one that should be a supporting or even, like, quite minor character. But because of her star power, she becomes a, like, key motivating force in three of the four movies she's in. Because she's Mystique, right? Yeah. Famously does not speak any lines in X-Men movies, the first three, I think. No, she's got some, especially in the first one. But Rebecca Romaine in the original three has no role like Jennifer Lawrence does in her movies. And especially Days of Future Past and Dark Phoenix are like kind of about her. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see her play such a little role. But she is good in it. Yeah. Like, I do like her in this movie. This is a classic star on the rise doing good work performance. It's also a very classic obstacle woman with no flaws that just ends up getting hurt role. Well, I mean, I I do think that's part of the point of this movie Yeah, is that our two main characters, Jacob and Anna, act in ways that hurt themselves and hurt each other and hurt a lot of the people around them. Yeah, they're dumb and bad. (laughs) That side, 
she really frustrated me, uh, Samantha, Jennifer Lawrence's character, because she keeps going back to Jacob, even though he keeps doing this to her. And that made her less appealing in my estimation the first time around. It was kind of like, oh, okay, you got hurt. But the fact that she not only continues to work with him, but also is then willing to just keep dating him on his terms whenever things are going bad with Anna. Yeah. Really, really upset me. And based on some of her dialogue, we know that she is aware to some extent, at least of the context of Jacob's relationship with Anna. This isn't something that he's hidden from her. And yet she's still willing to go along with it. And that bothered me a lot. It's also so annoying that Jacob chooses first to date a student that he is TA of and then date his coworker in an open relationship situation. Like, how dumb can you be? Like, you're in an open relationship with someone, and you choose the maybe worst person, the one you could make it the most awkward with, because it's never going to end well. Like, it's not going to end well. Like, you're going to probably move on because you're not in a full romantic relationship. Or, like, I don't know. It's just don't date a coworker in general is a good rule. He doesn't make great choices in this movie. Something that's unclear to me, is she her coworker? Does she work for him? I think I think she works for him. I think this is like his shop. Yeah, I think that's ev- like it's even worse cuz I think she's like his assistant or something. Yeah, so there's like especially with the way that that relationship keeps being reestablished, the power dynamics are not great. Yeah, it's so ugh. His choices in choosing who to date are very shudder-inducing. I kind of appreciate that, though. Clearly, he and Anna both make very bad choices, but I think the way in which they make bad choices is different. Anna is definitely the one making sort of more explicit awful choices, overstaying her visa all the times that she reinitiates her relationship with Jacob. But I like that... His bad choices are a little bit more subtle, but still very clearly present. It feels like more of his bad choices take place off screen between scenes, whereas hers are the focus of scenes. And I wonder how much of that is the autobiographical aspect of it, where Doramus is very aware of the things that the woman does that are bad ideas. And I wonder if the ways that Jacob's bad decisions are off screen is somewhat reflective of the fact that Doramus himself is not entirely aware of the extent to which those are also bad choices. Or he's aware, but he's kind of like, maybe we don't need to focus on me so much. I also kind of, to this point, feel like there are cases in which Jacob makes very bad decisions on screen, but almost all of those are framed as him going along with the bad choices that Anna initiates, not him initiating the bad choices himself. Which is not to say that his choices are any better than hers, but she's the one driving a lot of the hurtful actions. So uh, given all this, I think we're having some good conversations. Should we start talking about the meat of the romance of this movie? Yeah, I think we should dive right in. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide our discussion. So as our guest, Blachel, why don't you walk us through point number one? Happily. Point number one is in the very beginning of the movie, we see the beginning of their relationship. It's not clear how long 
this is taking place, but we later get context that it's over the course of probably several months, given that the first scene starts with the main professor asking people to turn their final projects into him. And we know that they are together for several months before she chooses to overstay her visa. I'm guessing they date for about a semester before they then graduate. Yeah, I think it's her senior spring. They're her their senior spring. But I think that they start to date in the fall just because they have the final projects. And her final project appears to be a speech about the democratizing power of the internet. It was a strange speech. Whereas everyone else writes a paper. And it's weird that she's talking about MySpace in this speech in 2011, and she's talking about it in the present. Well, I guess it's maybe supposed to be, like, the past, because he doesn't have an iPhone. That makes sense. Never mind. (laughs) Retract. And I think... They all have clunky flip phones. The MySpace reference might also be supposed to be, like, a time and place reference point. It would be like having a Crystal Pepsi, if you will. Remember when Pepsi was clear? Or, I mean, it's basically like if you shot a movie and you had the character using the iPhone that he uses today. You'd see it and you'd be like, oh, early iPhone, like 2010. I haven't read it out loud yet. So you'll be the first person. You sure you want to hear it? Mm-hmm. I thought I understood it, that I could grasp it, but I didn't. Not really. Only the smudgeness of it. So after she gives her presentation, she goes out to the parking lot. And she writes him a very long letter that she leaves on his car. She signs it with her full name, middle name included. and Weird puts move. Her, puts her number at the very bottom. And we later find out that in the letter, she says something like, I'm not a creepy stalker. She also says, like, let's hang out. And it includes at least one poem. It's strange. College students do such weird things to flirt with each other. They're so dramatic. Because the thing is, like, I work with high schoolers who are very dramatic. The problem is college students are, like, equally impulsively dramatic, but think they're adults. And so they take their dramatic things even more seriously. It's just so over the top. Like, that, I would not be, I personally would not be able to take that seriously. He's into it, though. Yeah, he calls her, they go out for coffee. And it's so awkward. I love it. I think that now I didn't know before we started recording this that a lot of this was improvised, but I think that that makes a lot of sense given how these interactions go because you can tell they aren't quite sure what to say to each other. And I think it's such a good depiction of when two people who kind of know each other decide they might like each other and go on a date and it's like I know who you are I've met you before but we also have never had a real conversation so how do we navigate this I like the weirdness later on when the date continues and they go up to her place for some whiskey and he starts like rifling through her CDs which feels weird but also is again one of those like college date moves like I will confess to like going to somebody's home and looking through their bookshelf. Yeah, it's Every a time. normal, like, that's a, a pretty unsurprising thing to do. I actually think the first date was one of the strongest scenes to me because they really managed to capture the awkwardness of a first date, even one that's going well, because you know it's going well. In movies, you see a lot of really awkward first dates that are like, oh, this is awkward and going poorly. But first dates, even when they're good, are kind of bad. And I like particularly the awkwardness of a first date with someone you kind of know. Yeah. 
Also, someone who is in a position of authority over you. Well, not anymore. The class has ended. She did her final thing. I guess that is true. And I mean, there I had a TA in one of my classes that lived on my freshman floor. So we were like the same age. So I guess it makes sense. Like if the class is over, then it's kind of more like go for it. But this is the TA where I was taking a final exam on a computer in a computer lab and word crashed. And I lost my entire exam halfway through. And so I was talking to the TA, who was just this guy that was friends with my freshman roommate and lived on my floor. And I started crying in front of him. And I was just like, I I like, I'm so sorry. This is so awkward for me, too. I understand. (laughs) I feel, but I was just so overwhelmed because I lost my entire exam. What ended up happening? Were you okay in the class? Yeah, I was given an extra half hour to finish because the professor wasn't there. It was just the TA running it. So he just stayed and gave me an extra half hour. And because I'd already written everything, I was able to write it much faster. So it all worked out in the end. I think I still got a B plus in the class, but oh well. Now, Mark, on how many of your college first dates did you ask the date to read you some of their poetry? Unfortunately, none. And I kind of regret it. Because it's not like I'll have the opportunity anytime soon. Because here's the thing. Like, maybe they say I never write poetry. In which case, no loss. I mean, the thing is, it's like, clearly she's proud of her writing. So she is in a position where she wants to be a writer. So you'd hopefully be someone that would share your writing, if that's the case. And he seems into it. So I guess, but still kind of, it's how I feel. For what it's worth. I have had a guy read me poetry on a first date. Oh, I no. did not ask for it. What? And I oh, did no. not enjoy it. I'm so... What was it about? I don't quite remember. For what it's worth, this guy had majored in creative writing, really, really wanted to be a writer, hadn't quite been able to break in. So as his day job was working at one of those companies that writes your school essays for you if you pay them. So he's a villain. <laughs> He did tell me he doesn't write the full essay. Depending on how much money you give him, he'll do different levels of quality of work. But the most he'll do, if you pay him the most money, is he will give you quotations from whatever book with the page numbers, as well as an outline telling you where those quotations should go and what else you should be talking about. Because, quote, this is a direct quote, Academic integrity is just really important to me, so I wouldn't want to write the essay for them. I am so happy right now, Rachel. So wait a minute. You don't know that he wrote the poem. We know that this person thinks it's okay to pay people to write stuff for you. He could have bought this poem off someone else, or at least an outline of this poem. No, but Will- You're on to something. (laughs) But Will, academic integrity is so important. Well, is this, it's, it would be creative integrity, not academic integrity, right? Yeah, and that doesn't exist. Right. So he could have just plagiarized this from someone. Unfortunately, I never spoke to him again after this one date that we went on. I don't know what his last name is. I may have never known his last name. I don't know how to get in touch with him and ask. Oh, I can't imagine having the gall to try and tell someone poetry on a first date. Well, this is also a guy, This I lived in Paris for a while, and I went on this date a couple months before I moved to Paris, but obviously that was something that came up in this date. I was really excited, and he started telling me about places in Paris that I should be sure to visit. And just Please sort of tell me he recommended the Eiffel Tower. Telling me different things about the city, and then it came out. I 
had studied abroad in France my junior year of college. I had been to France several times when I was in high school. At this point, I think I'd been to Paris maybe six or eight times. He had never been to Europe. Oh, God. (laughs) Amazing. I hear there's this really cool place called the Arc de Triomphe, and I really think you should check it out, Rachel, next time you're there. That said, keep in mind, I studied international politics in college, and he had studied creative writing, so he assumed that I did not know who Dostoyevsky was and tried to explain this author to me. This literally sounds like a SNL sketch. This is the worst man. You found the worst man. Yeah, after this date, I immediately called my sister and she put me on speakerphone and I told her and her roommate about it. And the entire time they were both saying, this sounds like a parody of a first date. And I said, yes, it lasted two hours i couldn't get out that's so uncomfortable he also um bought me coffee on his friend's credit card (laughs) rachel i didn't mean to derail the entire episode by talking about this This is more interesting than the movie you're just making it better i would rather watch a movie of this date like a my dinner with andre but it's my date with blachel and it's just about this this one day. Yeah, it was a bad day. He invited me to go tubing with him and his friends the next weekend, but I, again, never spoke to him again. Snow or river? River. It was Memorial Day. I feel like snow would fit the vibe that you're painting of this man a bit better, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Like, the weirder choice. Yeah. I And when I say it lasted two hours, I want to be clear, 45 minutes in, I was trying to leave, and he just kept talking. That's when you just go, look over there, and run away. <laughs> that said, a week later, I went on a date with a... Clearly, I was doing some app dating during this time <laughs> in my life. Um, I went on a date with a guy <laughs> who first insisted that we pray over our cheeseburgers before we eat them, which is the sort of thing where if you want to pray before you eat, that's fine, but I think it's very awkward to insist that another person also do that. And when I say pray over, I mean, we were not saying there silently he prayed out loud for both of our cheeseburgers and then cheeseburgers i can't what oh my goodness grilled cheese grilled cheese (laughs) (laughs) i didn't i i was uh, for your listeners who don't know i'm allergic to red meat um (laughs) this date was so terrible i decided to sabotage it by eating a food i'm allergic to no he um (laughs) he prayed over our grilled cheeses out loud he asked me how my family likes to start prayers so he could start it the same way and then he started asking me about what led me to want to go into nursing and all about that career because he had a date with a nurse later that day and mixed us up i love this and this is oh my god rachel you need to write this movie you can kind of take pick and choose from both dates just to make it Honestly, not even my best dating story from that summer. I can tell it to you later, but I don't want us to get too far from That's fair. Yeah, we should steer back. I do think, uh, Rachel, real quick, I do think a dating strategy that I thought of that maybe you were playing is ordering a food that might have meat, like might unknowingly have meat in it so you could pretend to eat meat and get an allergic reaction to get out of bad dates or just don't eat it if you're enjoying the date. So this is true. I used to try to schedule app dates at restaurants that leaned very heavily toward meat and I would just get chicken or something. But I wanted to encourage the person I was on a date with to get some meat dish so that then if I didn't like him, I had an excuse not to kiss him at the end of the date. Genius. 
Anyway, back to point one. (laughs) So speaking of weird date things, at the end of this night together, Felicity Jones stands in her glass doorway and Anton Yelchin comes back and they kind of like do an interpretive touch dance through the window. It's It's symbolism. Because they're distant. Or they soon will. They'll be trying as hard as they can to be with each other. But even when they can see each other, there will be something between them. Ugh. It's kind of painfully obvious what that like symbolism was and it went on for so long like if they had just each like waved through the glass i feel like you would have gotten the message without it being weird honestly i think the weirdest part of it though is when she touches her heart yes yeah oh my god this movie she's just very earnest so then we get some dating montage. They go to the beach. They ride some go-karts. They go shopping. They have dinner with her parents, which is like a nice, because that whole like dinner with your college significant other's parents is such a weird experience. Yeah, that first dinner is always weird. Because like in your college life, you're like sort of adults, but then you have actual adults there and it feels like an audition and you're just like, well, I ran around at two o'clock in the morning last night, so... I'm an adult. And I think they do a really good job showcasing this in the conversation that Jacob has with Anna's dad about whiskey. Because Anna's family is a really big whiskey family. And she clearly has been trying to get Jacob into whiskey. And it's unclear at this point if Jacob really likes whiskey or if he's just trying to appease her. But she says, yeah, I've been trying to teach Jacob about whiskey. And his dad gets so excited and really wants to talk about it. And Jacob can't even remember the full name of his favorite whiskey he's tried. Right. He's probably at the point where he's like, whiskey tastes good. That's my knowledge. I also really appreciate Anna's relationship with her parents, which is shown to be very open and they are very close to each other. And so given all of that, I like that they have her mom ask her in front of everybody whether she and Jacob are having sex with each other, because that seems like something that would potentially happen. And I think the way that it's played is very close to what would happen in reality. That felt very true to life to me. And even the way she says it, like, so I, I, you don't have to say anything else, but I just want to know, are you being grownups? And the dad says, you don't have to answer that. And the mom says, oh no, you, you need to answer that. that. The first time your mom asks you if you're using protection is an awkward moment that I feel like many people have gone through. And it's, Just always uncomfortable. Now, around this time, too, is when Jacob, who is a furniture designer, builds her her nice wooden chair so that she can sit and write in a good chair. I actually thought that he was a good furniture designer, which doesn't always happen in movies where they make someone actually good. Well, we've talked about, like, how comedians in movies often aren't funny because nobody wants to use their best jokes on a script. They want to use them in their own stand-up. Right. So it was nice to see a design aesthetic, especially one from an older movie, too, where I was like, oh, that's actually nice. Like, he's doing a good job. And then not long after that, they go on their date to Catalina Island before her planned return to the United Kingdom at the end of her visa. The only thing I know about Catalina Island is it's the f***ing Catalina wine mixer from Step Brothers. Right, of course. (laughs) That is the extent of my knowledge. Although it looks like this was shot on Catalina Island, whereas Step Brothers was not, and you can see <laughs> Catalina Island in the background of some shots. <laughs> Great choice, honestly. Uh, it's also worth noting that during this, this Catalina trip, they do some flirting. This is when he gives her the bracelet that says Patience, 
which is kind of weird. It kind of makes sense because it it's about like, like what would happen. Yeah, it's about like patients through the two months that were apart. Oh, I understand. But it's still like a weird bracelet. And is this when she gives him the book? Yes, she gives him the book of all of the like things they've done together. I honestly, throughout this entire movie, kind of got the sense that Anna feels a lot more comfortable on paper than in person in the sense of how she asks him out, the way that she tries to flirt with him the first day. She feels very awkward talking, but then when she reads her poetry, she's more comfortable. She gives him this book. And I thought that was really interesting given that the way that we see them communicating with each other once they're apart is always over the phone. And so I think that that was an interesting I don't know if it was intentional, but sort of showing that she is not able to communicate with him in the way that she is most comfortable communicating once they're not with each other. That's a good point. And of course, the next morning, she wakes up and declares that she has decided not to leave the U.S. She will overstay her visa. You know, visa fraud for two months. But like I said earlier, when they're on Catalina Island the night before, it's clear that they are not getting along quite as well as they're used to getting along. And it's not clear to me if that's because they're both stressed that she's leaving the next day. And as someone who spent quite a while abroad, when you're with your loved ones the night before you leave, it's always kind of hard because you have finally gotten used to being around them again. And now you know you're about to lose that. But I couldn't tell if it was that or if it was more just... They've been dating for several months now. They're going to get a little bit annoyed at each other. They are not always going to be in the same mood or on the same page. And I think the honeymoon period is kind of coming to an end regardless of what she does. And so like I said earlier, I think a big part of her reason for deciding to overstay her visa is that she interprets that as being entirely about her leaving and worries that they won't be able to handle these two months rather than it just being the natural progression of a relationship. I do have to say that like night before you're leaving, that feeling of forced fun, it's it's never great. Like it never actually feels that fun because you're like, well, you don't want to sit there and dwell on it. But at the same time, you don't want to just sit there and be sad either. And then you're wondering, are we really doing this because we're enjoying it and we're enjoying each other's company? Or are we doing this because we feel like we have to force a nice memory of the last time we were together that I then have to hold on to for several months? I don't even remember most of my like last big nights with people because they never end up being as meaningful because you just remember the good times. And instead of having to live in that and live with that awkward memory of their last night, she stays which is represented to us entirely as a montage of them in bed over the course of these days. We see them sprawled in different poses before she leaves to go back to the UK, I think for a wedding or something. For Sarah's wedding. Who's Sarah? We never find out. Don't know. It's weird how, like, I guess because it's ad-lib, but there's so little that gets explained. Yeah. But I guess that takes us to point number two when she tries to return from Sarah's wedding. So what have you been doing? I'm just working really hard. I'm busy and yeah, stuff stuff's going going well. It's been a good few months. That's great to hear. Yeah, I just um I hope it carries on. And we've talked about this a lot, this return where she tries to come in as a tourist, hoping that that'll bypass the visa issues, but instead she is detained at the airport. This part is 
honestly maybe the most heartbreaking part of the movie to me just because I obviously haven't experienced this on this level but have kind of experienced Jacob's position on this he is so excited to see her again he bought flowers he bought her some nice whiskey he's listening to Paul Simon in the car to pick her up which they discussed they both love Paul Simon and he gets there and he can't wait to see her and she calls him crying saying they're not letting me in I have to go back to the UK I don't know what's going on and he's running around the airport trying to find her and again this is on a much smaller scale but it reminded me of every time I had some loved one coming to visit me and their flight was delayed or canceled or something and it was going to be another few hours or another day until I got to see them and that feeling was so crushing and so I can't imagine how it would feel to think you're about to see your loved one and suddenly you don't know when that's going to happen because at least I knew, okay, you'll be on another flight tomorrow night. I mean, it's kind of like what happened where Nick was supposed to come visit me in April in London. Yeah, what happened to that? You know, it was very stressful to like just not know the next time I would see him for sure. But also there was plenty of time to kind of like adjust. But then we were like, oh, maybe by the end of June, like we'll be able to see each other and I'll come back to the US and I'll then go back to the UK. And it's like, "Mm, nope, that didn't happen either. But I imagine that you two were communicating better in distance than Anna and Jacob were where they keep having these like awkward text exchanges and missing or in some cases it seems dodging each other's calls. Plus, Mark, I'm sure that you and Nick had both followed proper immigration law. And so you were confident that at the point that you decided it was safe to see each other again, you would be able to make it happen. Yeah. And we definitely were much more in communication than these two. And it's kind of like the time difference is bad, but... It's clearly that they are not making the effort to talk to each other, which is a sign that maybe you just kind of let it go and move on, which is how I felt throughout most of this movie. And then they continued to not do that. But I think it is relevant for us to remember, again, their experience has been dating for somewhere between four and six months in college. And when you're in college, on the same campus, living in the same place, it is so easy to see each other. And so I don't think they have any practice really having to plan around each other. I think their entire relationship was pretty convenient until this happened. And so I think that the selfishness that they both show in the montage of missing each other's calls when like she tries to call him and he was tired so he went to bed or he wants to call her but she's at work so she's not talking to him. Like... That makes a lot of sense to me in that they have never learned not to be selfish with their time in relation to each other. Which I think is a good point of transition to point number three, because they've been having this thing where they haven't been quite connecting. And that comes to a head in part in advance of what turns into Jacob's visit to the UK. Yeah, do you want to come over? (laughs) Come over now. And uh, I'll just be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll see you in half an hour. I'll see you in half an hour. Just give me a couple days. <laughs> I'll get there, okay? Okay. Because in all of this, Anna can't come to the U.S. because she violated her visa. She's trying to get that sorted out. But Jacob is able to go to the U.K. and hasn't at this point. Right. We see him in his furniture shop. 
we know it's a few months later because Anna has a different haircut. She unfortunately does not have any fringe, but she has a different haircut. So we know some time has passed and he is talking to one of his coworkers, suppliers. I don't know. It's not Samantha, his assistant. And they're planning a shipment of furniture and when that's going to happen. And then the other guy says to him, and then after that, you're going to the UK, right? And he says, no, I'm not doing that. Um, a couple months ago, we decided to not. And so we're led to believe that they have now broken up with each other. Their relationship status is pretty hazy for the rest of the movie, including when they're married. I don't understand where they end up in this movie, to be honest. At the end of the yeah. movie. Yeah. I mean, the part of the thing is they spend the whole movie chasing this nice relationship that they believe that they had, whether it existed or not. But they're constantly convinced that if they can just get back together, they can get back to that. I think one of the reasons it's hard for us as the audience to see that goal is that those like idyllic periods for them are shown to us entirely really in two montages. The montage of them dating leading up to the Catalina Island weekend and the montage of them in bed all of those days. And so they have a sense that those were really, really great times but whether or not that was true isn't a thing that the audience knows. And I do think it's relevant as well that at points when they are together later in the movie, they do sort of have flashes of that where we can see when they get married, they are so giddy and excited. And there are points when he's in London when it seems like they are just so thrilled to be together and enjoying each other's company. But again, I think it's important that their relationship never got past the honeymoon stage before it was thrown into turmoil. And so I think they never learned how to be annoyed with each other. They never learned how to be bored with each other. And so they interpret some things that are very normal parts of relationships as potentially being their demise and try to avoid them as much as possible, which then turns into these big blow up fights rather than leaning into them, which could actually lead to them having the ability to have a sustainable relationship, whether or not that is even a good idea. So he goes to visit her in the UK. And among other things, he has that nice chair that he built shipped over as well as a surprise. And while he's there, there's like some awkward stuff with them hanging out. He says that he feels like he's not really part of her life. He's like on vacation there. And he definitely feels uncomfortable when Simon, her neighbor, shows up to return Anna's Tracy Jordan meat machine, which he has been borrowing. And I think it's relevant if I can back up just a little bit. How he decides to come to the UK is... They, we've seen them both in bars flirting with other people and very half-hearted about it. She goes home and falls asleep because she's eight hours ahead of him. He steps out of the bar and calls her and they have just this very friendly, pretty superficial conversation. They hang up and she immediately calls him back in tears about how much she misses him. So there isn't really a calm conversation about what their relationship is before he decides to come to the UK. It's sort of a moment of passion where she's really distraught because she misses him. He's being confronted for the first time in at least a couple of months, maybe more with, oh, this woman that I loved clearly still has very strong feelings for me. And so not a lot of thought is put into this decision. It just kind of happens. And so then he's there, and like we said, he feels kind of awkward, like he's not really fitting in. To the point that, towards the end of the trip, Anna Felicity Jones suggests that maybe they should see other people. 
which Jacob is not a fan of. No, and he's like, well, do you actually want that? And she says, no. And then he's like, well, you, why'd you bring it up? Clearly you want it. He's probably thinking of Simon and the meat machine at this time. Yeah. And the reason she brings this up is because he's in a weird mood and she's really stressed out about him being in a weird mood and is putting this offer out as a way to try to get him out of the weird mood and she says you know it's hard for us to keep stopping and starting like this I don't want you to feel like you're missing out on any part of your life and this goes back to what I said earlier Uh, they have not learned how to deal with each other being in weird moods whether or not those weird moods are actually related to each other you know sometimes you're just in a bad mood and it has nothing to do with your significant other sometimes you are in a bad mood that has to do with your significant other but it's not really anything they did you just are in a bad mood and then they annoyed you and you need to get over it. And they've never learned how to weather that. And we see this very awkward and uncomfortable and angry conversation. And then it cuts back to the United States, which I think is point four. Yes. Point four. He has an iPhone now. Whoa! Moving on up. I just, it doesn't feel like this, this thing is going to go away. It's always there. I can't, I can't get on with my life. We agreed. I know, Jacob, but the things that we have with each other that that I don't have with any other person, with any other human being apart from you, we should be with each other. And I feel it so strongly, and I feel like it's right for us to get married. So we see that he is now in a somewhat serious relationship with Samantha. It looks like they live together in his furniture shop. Okay, Jacob lives in a loft in his furniture shop where he uses power tools to make furniture out of wood. As near as I can see, we don't get a good look at the loft ever. It looks like it is just open, like there's not even like a glass wall, which means that his home area is just full of sawdust. And when we're thinking about Jacob's dumb choices, we need to include the fact that he has chosen to live covered in sawdust. I mean, I think part of that might be they didn't want to pay for an extra location, so they just filmed it there too. They were just like, he lives up there. Alternatively, we see Jacob express his love for he has sex up there by making her a chair and then we see that he wants to date sam who works in his wood shop and therefore is presumably also covered in sawdust is wood or sawdust a necessary part of the romantic or sexual experience for jacob i'm trying to think of a wood joke that'll work here is this a family-friendly podcast Ish. Yeah, ish. Uh, anyway, so he's dating Jennifer Lawrence. They go out there, like, dancing around in clubs, drinking beers, having a flirty time. Well, he took her out because he accidentally called her Anna and then is embarrassed about it, so he wants to take her out on a nice date. And she says she's cool with it in a way that makes me feel like this may have happened before. Yeah, so they're at the club, and Anna's like, hello, call me. And he ignores Over her. text. And, keeps and he ignores her. Until he stops ignoring her and calls her on the phone and she's like, we should get married. Well, it's because she sends him a text that says, please don't ignore me. And then proposes. And she says, like, I don't think that this thing between us is going to go away. I don't want to have regrets about us. I don't feel about other people the way that I feel about you. And at first, what he says to her is, we agreed. Which makes me think that in their conversation about breaking up, which they 
clearly had at some point, they said that they wouldn't keep putting each other through this. Yeah, don't text your ex. Don't text your ex. But she keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And, you know, it doesn't take too much time for him to agree. And then the next thing we see is him breaking up with Samantha. Or no, first Samantha says to him, I know that you talked to her tonight. And then he breaks up with Samantha. Samantha, gotta find a new man. Yeah, Samantha, it's time to move on. You can do better. He is now getting married. And somehow he's back with Sam later in the movie. And I don't get it. So the plan with marriage is in part that that would hopefully clean up the visa thing. Because she would be able to get in on a spouse visa. So they go to the UK, get married, and they're not able to clear up the visa thing because her previous visa violation has not been cleared up. And I think it's relevant for us to realize they get married, they can't have this visa appointment for six months. They have to have been married for six months for her to get a spousal visa. And we have, I kind of like this montage in the airport where it looks like we see him getting on the escalator to go back to the U.S., And then she's standing there and these people are all moving around and six months pass. And then we see him coming back down the escalator. She has yet another slightly shorter haircut and they go to their visa appointment. By the end of the movie, she's furiosa. Exactly. But I think it's relevant that we don't know what they've been doing for the last six months. And it seems like they don't really know what each other has been doing for the last six months. But when they go before the hearing for the spouse visa, they're emphasizing like, yes, we have this deep relationship. She's pulling up like, here are the books I've made for every year of our relationship. Which like, what's in those later books? Maybe it's like what her boss says, where it's just pictures of them each living their own lives, but together. Yeah. I don't know. But the visa officer says, you know, I have no doubts of the authenticity of your relationship, but we need the student visa block to be lifted before we can do anything else. Like the student visa office specifically has to lift the block. We talked a little bit earlier about the ways that Jacob's choices are often off screen. And I think one that is significant here is the fact that like, Anna cannot move to be with Jacob because she is being blocked by the US government. Jacob cannot move to be with Anna, it seems, because... He doesn't want to. I mean, obviously, like, in his industry, like, I'm sure he has, like, some regular clients and it'd be a pain to lose those. Like, I'm sure he has heavy equipment that would be a pain to move. But it does seem like that would be the most obvious way for them to be together. Well, it will. The thing is, British people don't use furniture. Little known fact. There's just no market for a furniture maker there because no one has any furniture. So that's why Simon is such a fool who deserves to be abandoned. It's because he gives her a chair and you wouldn't need a chair in England. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing? This chair is American, so I will accept it. But British people don't need furniture. We do know early on she talks about him coming to London, but it's relatively soon after they graduated and her parents would have to help out for his plane ticket. We hear that his dad died and he has a relationship with his mom, but it seems like that relationship is not quite as close. And I also get the sense just in sort of how he moves through the world, that he grew up less wealthy than Anna did. So at first, he can't come to the UK because he can't afford it. And then I think it's just kind of inertia, where he has become settled and he has his life. And also, frankly, when he did visit her in the UK, I think that she did everything she could, but he was not made to feel welcome in ways that would actually make him feel welcome. For example, we see her take him to a pub to meet some of her friends, but she doesn't seem to have given him a lot of back 
background on her friends going in. Because they don't communicate when they're right. apart. And even, you know, when I am going into a social situation where I'm introducing two groups of people, a lot of the time I will give people background on each other just going in and say, hey, I don't know if this will come up, but just so you know, like so-and-so is really, really into pro basketball and also just got a promotion at work. So that that way you have a little bit of context to be able to have a conversation and not just feel like you're thrown into the deep end. And we're, I think we often see Jacob as someone who is a little bit more cautious in social situations. And Anna is a lot more comfortable. And I think that she never really picks up on how uncomfortable he can be. So I think it's a really interesting example when he comes that she is doing things that would be the things that would make her feel really welcome and excited to be somewhere. But those are not the things that work for Jacob and she hasn't realized what does work for him. But anyway, he did not feel very welcome when he was in the UK. So he doesn't have a lot of incentive to go back except that Anna is there, but he doesn't like the Anna that he knows in the UK, just the Anna that he knows from college. And that impasse, that miscommunication, comes to a head as they are living together in the UK in their little apartment, and they get in a big fight over what their steps forward are, and she is accusing him of still having a relationship with Sam, which, like, that relationship has been weird and irregular, but they are legitimately just texting about work stuff. And he accuses her of having a flirtationship with Simon, the hot hunk from across the hall. Are they living together? I got the sense that he was just visiting for her visa appointment. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. For the duration of his time there, he is living there. Yeah. And then he'll go back. The way that you, like, live in a hotel for a week. I accept Mm -hmm. that. That's definitely the verb I use. (laughs) But also, I feel like he is never settled enough for it to really be like he's living there. And he always feels like he's just visiting no matter how Anna feels about it. Sure. So they get into a fight. She doesn't like that he yells because she's British. And he goes back to America. This brings us to point five, right? Yep. Yes. Sketch? Psst. Yeah, I'm sketching. Come on, have a shower. Okay. I'll, t- I'll take one with you. Okay. So the starting point is... Anna is now in a pretty serious relationship with Simon. We know that they've been dating for at least six months. And we don't know how long it was between her fight with Jacob and when they started dating. So I get the sense that it's been maybe about a year since we last saw them. Yeah. Um, They are still texting each other. She gets a promotion and texts him about how excited she is. He says, congratulations, and she texts back, I miss you. Note that he's answering all of these texts while in bed with Sam. Sam, what are you doing? You gotta do better. Oh, Sam. I think it's really interesting to see, though, how Anna and Jacob each function in relationships with other people. Obviously, I think that Jacob and Sam's relationship is deeply problematic, and I don't like it. I think Anna's relationship with Simon is a lot more interesting, though, because For the entirety of her relationship with Jacob, she has been portrayed as the one who's kind of calling the shots. She is who first expressed interest. She is always the one saying to him, no, come visit me. Like, let's get married, do all of this. Even something as little as she is the one introducing him to whiskey. Whereas with Simon, it very much seems like Simon is the one sort of directing things. They talk about how... He has gotten her to stop drinking so much and she has started exercising now and they're eating a lot more healthily. And these are all things that Simon is really interested in that Anna previously didn't seem to care much about. And so I think it's 
interesting to see that dichotomy. We have sort of a split scene at one point where Jacob and Sam are having sex and then Anna and Simon are about to have sex, but she realizes that her bracelet has fallen off. The patient's bracelet that Jacob gave her and she freaks out. And she finds the bracelet, but it's broken. And then I think they continue having sex, yeah, though. I think they do. Oh, do they? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Good for them. Yep. Um, but then Simon gives her a new chair. Right. To replace the big old wooden chair from Jacob. And he puts Jacob's chair it's in the It's such an closet. ugly chair. Yeah, Jacob's chair is better. But then he goes to, like, game night with her parents. Well, they have her parents over for dinner to celebrate her promotion. Right. And they play Balderdash. Which we've previously seen them play with Jacob. Right. They're a hardcore Balderdash family. And Simon then, apparently out of nowhere, after six months of dating, proposes in front of her parents. Bad move. It's also, in general, it's also a bad idea to propose if you don't know for sure the person will say yes. Yes. I once went, a fun fact, listeners, I once went on a rant on Facebook about how it was a bad idea to propose unless you have previously discussed it and decided that you do want to get married. And Will, the host of this podcast, commented on it and said, you know, this is a thing that we regularly talk about on our show. And I said, yeah, your podcast is great. I would love to be an ambassador for it. And he promised me a t-shirt with the host's faces on it. And this was... I think three years ago, and I have yet to receive it. There, look, supply chains are delayed with the pandemic. Anyway, the most interesting thing to me about this proposal is he says, I know that things are kind of complicated and there are some things to work out. AKA she's married. But I love you and I want this to work. And that was not something that I picked up on when I watched this movie last fall. But watching it this time, I was kind of like, so he knows about this relationship to some extent and I want to know the extent to which he knows about this relationship but another big thing that happened before this scene was we see Anna get a call from the lawyer that her spousal visa has been approved she can go to the U.S. and so she and it's the same day she's wearing the same dress she's clearly in quite a bit of emotional turmoil but hasn't told her parents hasn't told Simon and then he suddenly proposes And her parents immediately kind of shut down and say, okay, well, we're going to go home now. And off screen, she decides to dump Simon and go to the U.S. to Jacob's place. It's super awkward when she shows up to his sawdust covered sex loft. And he's like bringing in her luggage. And then it's that final scene that Felicity Jones shot with her boyfriend. I mean, not the version in the movie, but for her audition where they're just in the shower together. She's wearing her necklace. And they just remember the good times while looking sad, and then the movie's over. I think that this final sequence is really interesting because Jacob picks her up at the airport. We see them hug. We've seen them hug after being apart several times now, and this one is just so overwhelmingly friendly to me. Like, there don't seem to be a lot of these passionate feelings, which were what were spurning their entire relationship up to now. Like it wasn't about compatibility. It wasn't about mutual respect for each other. It was just, I have these feelings for you. And those feelings clearly are kind of gone. While he's driving, we see her kind of try to hold his hand and then second guess it and take her hand away because she isn't really sure. And then when she gets to his loft, she says, yeah, I might go have a shower. 
I took it to mean like I just flew across an ocean. I'm feeling a little gross and want to clean up. And he says, oh yeah, um, I can come do that with you. And I think it's such an interesting example of I... I've never had this experience with a romantic partner, but with friends of mine sometimes where it's been a really long time since I saw them and I don't quite know how to interact with them because we used to be really close and we aren't close anymore. So I still know all these things about this person, but I don't quite know how to connect with them. And I think that earlier in the movie, they did a really good job of showing that kind of euphoria you have when you reconnect with a romantic partner, especially a romantic partner that you may have thought you would not reconnect with again. And then it's just sort of this rush of like, oh my goodness, like I have this back. And I think that is such an interesting contrast to what we see in the final sequence where it's like, I don't have actively negative feelings toward you, but I don't know how much I actually care about you at this point. And that's the movie. Yeah. All right. So after watching all of this happen, do you guys find the romance between Jacob and Anna believable? I think kind of for a lot of the reasons we've talked about where like I can see the way and I think Blachel's made the case for a lot of the ways that the dumb choices they've made sort of make sense. I like to think that Sam wouldn't keep getting back with Jacob. That's believable to me. It's unfortunate, but it's very believable. I don't think that I think the level of stupidity among the number of people in this movie is too high for me to fully get on board but I don't think it's like unbelievable we also the rules of your podcast state that we have to take the romance within the world where we're located and this movie appears to be located in a world where people don't know anything about visa law I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I don't think that's fair. So I think her parents reason, told her not to do that. I'm going to rank parents this Her parents actively movie were like, you're... Eight out of ten on believability. <laughs> because I think that given the situations that they're put in or put themselves in, the way that they react to each other in a romantic context actually does make a lot of sense to me. When you think about they started dating in their early 20s, and they never experienced the relationship beyond a honeymoon stage in their early 20s and think that that is what a relationship is. And I think that also makes sense how they have kind of a weird time interacting with other people. Or Anna says at one point, I don't feel the same way about you as I feel about other people. That's because she is now in her mid to late 20s and relationships are different at that age. I think I just wish we had seen, for the purposes of rating the romance, I don't think I necessarily need it in the movie. For the purpose of rating the romance, I wish I had seen more of the honeymoon phase besides those two fairly brief montages. Yeah. I was thinking like a 7 out of 10 for this one. I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to say a 7.5 because I, I, I feel the pull in both directions, but I, I feel like I would need more of the montages. Do you guys think that Jacob and Anna are dateable? I think that they are not dateable to each other. And I think that they are not dateable so long as they are interacting with each other in any capacity. Correct. But I think it's possible that they are, especially, honestly, Anna makes more bad decisions, but I kind of have more respect for her than Jacob because I think she thinks at least a little bit more than he does about how her decisions affect third parties beyond her and Jacob. So I think it's possible that Anna is dateable so long as she is not interacting with Jacob in any capacity at all. Frankly, the fact that he goes back to Sam so many times. No good. Makes me think that... Jacob chooses only women that he is in a position of authority over. Also true. 
Yeah. So I don't think I'm going to go with Anna could be dateable if she starts going to therapy. Do we think they stay together after this movie? Absolutely not. No, No, of course not. In no way. But if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I would definitely pick Simon because like Simon, I don't like to drink and I do like to run and I like healthy things and like healthy food. But he like forces her to do those things against her will almost. Honestly, it's unclear to me that he's actually forcing her to do it because based on what we have seen of her understanding of relationships, I think it's possible that she has tried to get into it just because he cares about it. And again, she doesn't know how to have a relationship where two people have different interests from each other. Yeah. I think it's her mom. I think Anna's mom is the most fun person in the movie. I had the same thought. I thought there was a strong Uh, case for Simon, who seems like a perfectly nice, hot dude. But I would rather date Anna's mom. Very friendly. I'll play some Balderdash with her. But can you go on runs with her? I don't want to go on a run with her. Going on runs <laughs> is honestly the key thing that I look for in a potential romantic partner. Will they go on runs with me? Well, I wish you luck with that. Nick came running with me for the first time yesterday, which was very strange. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. But honestly, no, the, the thing I really look for in a potential romantic partner is if they will be a good sport in participating with the annual run that my family puts on. But you're able to walk during that run or ride a bike. Now, Rachel, for our last question, many of the films we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. What do you think? Should it happen with Like Crazy? I don't think that it should, in part because I think now that I know it exists, the improvisational aspect of this movie is very much an asset to it, which goes along with what I would have said even if I didn't know about that. An important thing within this movie is the dialogue, and I don't think that this type of dialogue would translate well into a musical format, in part because the awkwardness is so important, and just by its nature, in a song, I don't think you can capture the same type of awkwardness. I feel like... A better version of this is the stage musical once, which is not as good as the movie. But I feel like a lot of the similar themes exist in once in a way that I enjoy more. I could see some of that about figuring out whether a relationship can survive separation. Yeah. And just like the gaps between cultures, even just like awkwardness. That's a good point. Well, I think that about does it for our discussion of Like Crazy. So I'm glad we were able to do this. Blachel, I hope you'll be able to find your way back through the interdimensional portal. It's still just sitting there, so you should be okay. Next week, we will be talking about a movie that I cannot recommend highly enough. We will be watching the Chilean film A Fantastic Woman by Sebastian Lalo. I was really happy when A Fantastic Woman won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 2017 because it meant that Bear Story was no longer the only Chilean winner because I still hold a grudge against Bear Story for winning Best Animated Short over Edge of Tomorrow and I didn't want it to be like I hated Chilean Oscar-winning films. It's just Bear Story that I have a grudge against. Okay, I am glad to hear it. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions and movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help new people to find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from this movie? There are not many good options. Blachel, you're up. I can't decide whether to be serious or funny. Which do you prefer? Always go funny. Okay, in that case, uh, my piece of dating advice is to... Ask your mom to borrow some condoms because then she doesn't have to ask you in front of your new boyfriend whether you are using them.
I guess my piece of dating advice, the thing that works in this is to write a novella and stick it under their car windshield. Seemed to work for her. She wrote like three full pages front and back and stuck it under his car windshield wiper. Handmade gifts can be nice and fun surprises, like the chair or a novella. Oh, that's actually good advice. But there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. And I'm Blachel, and I'm going back to my alternate reality, which is a lot better than this one. There's no COVID. Oh, we can only dream. uh, Just you and me, Mark, (laughs) then. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Excuse me, but I think you've got my chair. No, that one's not taken, I don't mind If you sit here, I'll be glad to share Yeah, it's you